This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Mark Burton. Mark is a pediatrician, author, professor, and mindfulness teacher specializing in neurodevelopmental behavioral pediatrics. He's a regular contributor to Mindful.org, the HuffPost, and Psychology Today. What sounds true, Mark has written a new book called How Children Thrive, The Practical Science of Raising Independent, Resilient, and Happy Kids, where he teaches that by understanding healthy developmental stages, parents are better able to support their child's well-being. Using new insights from the science of executive functioning, Mark Burton shows that a supportive, fun, growth-promoting environment is what kids actually need to thrive. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Mark and I spoke about the development of executive function from preschool through early adulthood and a gut-level sense of how executive function develops in stages. We also talked about his research and writing on ADHD and how ADHD is a medical disorder and a developmental delay in executive function and how his work with ADHD led to his new book, How Children Thrive. We also talked about the classic marshmallow test and how healthy play helps develop good self-management skills. And finally, we talked about how to set limits within a family on technology use, how mindfulness meditation promotes executive function, and the connection between self-management and the ability to manage others, and even contribute ethically and meaningfully to the world. Here's my conversation with Dr. Mark Burton. Mark, to begin, and as a way to give our listeners a bit of an introduction to the work that you do, you're a developmental pediatrician. What's that? How is that different than just a pediatrician? Um, well, developmental pediatrics is a subspecialty of pediatrics, just like you know, uh, cardiology or pulmonology are. So I actually was a general pediatrician for several years, and then I did a fellowship in um, all the nuances of just ch- of child development. So, okay, that makes sense to me. So you're a pediatrician who's an expert in child development. Yeah, I mean, practically speaking, it, it, my days are a lot more. Um, you know, from the outside, you'd say they're they're a lot more like a psychologist, probably the way people traditionally talk about it. So, I don't do anything uh, anything much acutely medical anymore. 
Okay. And in your new book, How Children Thrive, you focus on what you call the developmental path of executive function. And you go so far, and this is a quote from the book, to state that executive function is the bedrock of raising happy and resilient children. So to begin with, can you introduce our listeners to what executive function is and why it's so important? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, I guess there's two different things I would say about it. I mean, uh, practically speaking, the way to think of executive function um, is it's that it, it's a cognitive skill set that has to do with just managing and organizing our lives. And it's one that um, I don't think has been talked about much or enough, um, meaning that... Um, you know, one of the examples I think I, I use in the book is that, you know, you, you can have very concrete information about something like how would you run a restaurant, um, but, you know, at somebody at 10 or 11 might be able to list all the parts, but they're not going to have the sort of organizational skills to stay focused long enough to manage time and, and sort of plot things out and keep track of the big picture until they're much older, you know, so that there's a difference in child development between knowing stuff and being able to sort of manage it and handle it day to day. Uh, the same concept goes for even like academic learning, where you can know a topic pretty well, but you also need to be able to focus and organize and plan and, and, and do this other, you know, larger level of management in order to do well in school. And uh, and from a research point of view, there's a there, there's a lot of research developing that says that having really strong self-management skills in early childhood uh, predicts a lot of very long-term measures of success. Uh, in essence. You know, we can't control everything for our kids. We can't predict everything that's going to come up. But these are a lot of the abilities that are going to let them, over time, learn how to handle their own lives independently. Okay, so right here at the beginning, for the parents, grandparents who are listening, what activities, what environments support executive function and the development of this cognitive skill set, and what impairs it or makes it harder? Um, well, it's a great uh, it's a great question, and I think you know while we're talking, there's actually two things I think that are really important to look at. One is that question of how do we promote it, and then the other is is really recognizing that when we can understand executive function, it really impacts choices we can make around just day to day parenting. I mean, it, it's sort of a lot of it, it impacts things like managing homework time and and technology and and bedtime. Um, but in terms of promoting um, promoting and building executive function, uh, it, it changes as kids grow up. I mean, I think that's one of the core concepts here that um, hasn't really talked about that much yet in general parenting is that this is something we can track kind of like language abilities. You know, you don't expect a one-year-old to speak the same way as a five-year-old or a 15-year-old, and, and executive function is the same. So in very early childhood, um, I think one of the important things to recognize about this is a lot of the things that help kids become more independent um, actually simplify our lives a lot as parents. It sort of strips away a lot of the extra stuff that makes us stressful. So in very early childhood, for example, one of the you know, foundational uh, activities for kids because it develops these uh, self-management skills is just open-ended play. And when kids start, you know, we feel pressured as parents to schedule more and more classes and even in preschoolers, this 
sort of uh, developmentally off pressure to teach them academics really young and maybe get them involved in all these structured activities. You know, and each of those things might have a role in, in the course of an average week. But the bottom line is, is uh, if you had to look at what in very, very early childhood helps build executive function, it's things like uh, a stable family environment, uh, balanced by clear limit setting, so it's not either or, so it's a very positive environment, but having very clear limits helps kids develop self-management skills. And then just really prioritizing time for open-ended, imaginative play with family, with friends, and uh, and not feeling pressured to push kids faster than that. In fact, there's some evidence that in the preschool set that uh, when they're in environments that emphasize open-ended play more than academics, they actually, in the long run, are going to do better academically because developmentally they're not supposed to be learning reading, writing, and math uh, you know, before school starts, in essence. Not that it's wrong. You know, if an individual child has those abilities, perfect, but you, know, you shouldn't feel pressured that the average child needs to be doing that that young. Okay, I have a couple of questions for you, Mark, just sure. to get clear here. Uh-huh. So... I'm still wrapping my mind around what executive function is. And when you talked about it as a cognitive skill set, I started tuning into that and I was thinking about long-term planning and managing lots of details. But now you're emphasizing the capacity for self-management. How does self-management relate to executive function? Well, um, I, I think you're, we're actually saying the same thing. There, you know, by, by self-management, when I, when I think of executive function, it's like anything require, that requires um, that overall supervision, in essence. So, you, you know, the, the metaphor we use a lot is it's like the conductor of the orchestra. You know, the, the, the musicians can be as talented as you want, but somebody needs to conduct the orchestra or the CEO of a business. So in day-to-day life, I mean, this is really important to me. I mean, all of this, if you're listening, if you're, you know, whenever anyone talks about this, it really should feel practical because, you know, this is a way of understanding child development that really, you know, changes how we think of things. So we have to, for example, manage our attention, right? So we need to focus even on things that are challenging and shift our attention between different, uh, you know, different tasks all during the day and, and all the, you know, all of these things that have to do specifically with, you know, staying on task. So one part of executive function is, you know, managing attention in that way. And, you know, uh, why don't you can track over childhood that children are able to focus for a longer amount of time as they get older. Um, and, uh, and also recognize that some, you know, kids can have, you know, difficulties with focus. And then we have to look at that as like a skill we need to work on. Um, but then the rest of management and where this becomes you know, much more, for example, like the heart of classroom learning is managing tasks, managing time, managing emotions. Um, So it's this really complex, uh, on the bigger sense, I mean, it involves lots of different skills uh, in the bigger sense, but on a practical level, it really has to do with just, you know, that day-to-day managing whatever comes up in life. And, And you can look at, for example, disciplining kids and realize that in very, very young kids, because they can't really manage or conceive of time particularly yet, and they don't have a lot of impulse control, and they don't have a lot of foresight, you know, you can use this to sort of recognize that in younger kids, there isn't a lot of learning. They're not, they're, their behavior is going to change almost entirely from immediate feedback, because developmentally, 
if you talk to an average, you know, four or five-year-old from that point of view of like, can't you see you hurt her feelings? You know, from a point of view of cognitive development, the answer probably on a, on a, on a practical level is no. You know, I, I really can't see that because I haven't developed that way yet. Um, so that discipline in young kids, you know, really has to be very concrete and black and white and a lot of very immediate feedback, you know, tempered by very clear um, corrective feedback, positive feedback, I should say, you know, tempered by very clear limit setting, too, because, you know, when you get caught up in overly talking to very young kids about their behavior, um, you know, it may have some other, it has sort of a relational value of, of keeping them in the loop and, and forming a relationship, but but from the point of view of behavioral learning, you're not going to get much of anywhere. And then when you look at the development of you know, these life management skills over time, then by the time you're a teenager, you know, maybe you have developed some capacity to you know, tie your actions, tie the things you're doing now to what happened earlier in the day or what's going to be happening next weekend. And, and your ability to discuss things and collaborate has grown so now discipline might have to evolve because you know you're you're you know you've grown up in essence in that way and then it's also important to recognize that that maturity of executive function I mean one of the reasons I think this is such an interesting aspect of brain development to understand as a parent is that executive function actually matures until you're almost 25 or 30 years old so, uh, and it's a big bell curve, so everybody I'm sure knows a teenager who's well ahead of the curve and seems to be able to manage everything in life. You know, we all probably know of people who were forced into, you know, really like almost running a family as teenagers, and many people do quite well with it. But if you look at typical development, most teenagers are 10 years away from having a fully mature brain manager. And when you look at how they, you know, deal with, you know, really challenging situations in school or you know, smartphones and sexting and all these different things, you know, some of it needs to be a recognition of you can be completely brilliant as a teenager, completely motivated as a teenager, and still, you know, really not have mature executive function skills. You know, you, you still need a parent's involvement because your foresight is, is 10 years away from being fully grown up. Is there a certain part of the brain, Mark, that tracks along as we develop more and more executive functioning skills? Um, yeah, there, there is, although you can't really measure it in any concrete way. But yeah, the, t- the part of the brain we're talking about is, uh, is the front part of the brain. It's often called the frontal lobes primarily. And that part of the brain uh, largely has to do with executive function. This was where some of the overlap with research and mindfulness comes because certainly um, of the many activities that helps develop uh, these sort of self-regulatory skills, these self-management skills, the practice of mindfulness is one of them, and some of the research overlaps there. Um, and one of the ways we know that there's this ongoing maturation of the of the brain is because we can see that, in, you know, specifically in the frontal lobes, that the you know the, that part of the brain keeps maturing well into our twenties. Now, I know you've written two previous books before How mm-hmm. Children Thrive about ADHD. One was Mindful Parenting for ADHD and the Family ADHD Solution. What did your work with ADHD teach you about executive function then led to this new book, How Children right. Thrive? Well, I mean, that is, I, mean, I think that's a, that's a really great question because... Um, they do one one leads to the other and what i really you know what i think um well let me start at the beginning of your question 
the most practical way to think about ADHD, I mean, and there's subtleties to this that make it perhaps not literally true, but the most practical way to um, look at what it means to even evaluate for somebody if if somebody has ADHD is that it's a developmental delay in executive function so that it's not really an attention disorder specifically. So kids with ADHD have difficulties with attention and behavior, but really in the big picture, what, what often gets in the way as they get older is they might have difficulties in organization and planning and time management and keeping track of stuff in their head and emotion and sustained effort, you know, all of which are part of executive function. Um, so on a, you know, on a very practical level, um, ADHD is a, is a example of what it means to grow up with challenges around executive function. So for parents whose kids do have ADHD, um, I mean, I'd say two things if anyone happens to be listening to this. I mean, on the one hand, I think too much gets made of initially of tying the evaluation for ADHD to the treatments for ADHD because, um, you know, a lot can change, a lot can benefit children if you just see that it's a skill set that's behind, that, you know, they're struggling just like somebody else might be struggling with a language delay or a motor delay. Um, and then the flip side is is all of ADHD intervention relies, to me, if you want to do it really comprehensively, on recognizing all the subtle ways being behind an executive function impacts life. So ADHD, for example, has been linked not just to school problems, but to overeating and car accidents, if it's not treated. Um However, uh, you know, after working all these years, you know, my clinical work, my day-to-day work is a lot with kids who are, you know, struggling in different areas of development, so I do a lot of work with ADHD. Um, because of that, I'm, I'm pretty immersed in just all of this, you know, all the, the whole world, the, the whole body of research and, and the practical side of understanding executive function. And that ties to stuff like, um, you know, like the marshmallow test, which you might, you know, might be familiar with, you know, that which is we can come back to in a second, but it's a very early measure of self-management skills that you know appears to be a predictor of decades of of success in different in different ways as children grow up. So, so what you um, you know, so so what I've been you know been able to do, become more and more interested in, is just recognizing that um, we can take that same understanding of executive function and then make it practical for general parents, you know, because when you look at what children, when you begin to get a more sort of, you know, uh, gut-level feel of what executive function feel, you know, should be at different ages as a parent, or typically is, should is a, I don't, should is a very um, loaded word, but typically is as a parent, you know, it really can help you, um, you know, see what, see what will most set your child up for success at different ages. So if you look at even something as, as, you know, often immensely frustrating but practical as sleep training, you know, when you when you step back and recognize that the average young child doesn't really have that much invested in sleep and doesn't necessarily like, you know, going to their room at the end of the night and might get a little bored lying there and in essence has no larger perspective, no brain manager yet to say, well, in spite of the fact that this isn't the most fun thing to do, I'm going to feel so much better tomorrow if I get a good night's sleep. You know, that just isn't possible for really through elementary school for many kids, uh, sometimes even later. 
you can see that even if they could write a, you know, they could read a book with you and practically understand that sleep is important for the human body. They just don't have the larger skills to manage bedtime themselves. And and when you look at it that way, you realize what the research happens to show, which is that almost you know, usually speaking, healthy sleep in early childhood comes from parent-created routines. Because parents have the mature brain manager in the room, so that you know, overly discussing sleep, fighting over sleep, you know, doing things like sitting with your child until they fall asleep, all of these things don't teach your child, uh, often don't teach your child to sleep well on their own. I mean, many of us have, you know, sometimes you get lucky and have a child who happens to be a very good sleeper, but whenever sleep issues come up, you just have to remember that instead of getting, you know, that, that all the answers are going to come from the stronger brain managers in the room, the stronger, you know, the adults in the room have to come up with a solution. Uh, and not worry about the discussion side of Nesmus. You're not going to convince a young child to sleep better, typically. Okay, there's there's a lot here, and I want to unpack some of the things you've said. You said one of the important things as a parent is to get a gut-level sense of what healthy executive function in development might look like through (laughs) the different ages. That wasn't a very practical way to say it, was it? That's, just, that's, a, that's a very wordy way to say it. Actually, I kind of liked it. What I liked was this gut-level sense, that there's sort of an intuitive sense of, oh, my kid is starting to develop these capacities in an age-appropriate way. So just take us through some basic age distinctions and what healthy executive function coming online looks like. Sure. Um you know, pa- painting in broad strokes. I mean, certainly in, in preschool, I think, um, I mean, one of the more, I mean, th- this is actually some, some of the newer sciences that there even is a path to executive function. So what you're seeing in preschool, I mean, sometimes it's easier, the way that I think it's easiest to see it is you compare to different points in time, like what changes between when someone's a toddler and a kindergartner, you know, so that in terms of these self-management skills, so you can look at across all of these different areas, if you expect a preschooler to focus too long, again, if you push academics really young, you have to recognize that when it comes to executive function, part of it is sustained attention. And there isn't any reason, you know, in fact, there's a little research saying that by kindergarten, if kids are in overly academic settings, they could be falsely diagnosed with ADHD because if our expectations are too high for what they're capable of, they're not going to be able to do it. So, So preschool you expect an evolving but relatively short attention span. You expect, uh, you know, an evolving sense of behavior that's really just like rudimentarily impulse control. Sometime during preschool, you have to start dealing with the frustration of someone took your toy without reacting to it. But you don't have any sense yet of, first of all, time. So when it comes to discipline, if you, if you, you know, the, the sort of old cliche of boy, you know, don't do that because when your father gets home, you know, by six hours later, they might be upset they got in trouble, but they can't really tie the behavior together and they can't plan at all. I think that, you know, that's probably obvious in a preschooler, but that's executive function too. So in preschool kids, what you expect is a lot of immediacy, you know, some leftover impulse control, a fairly high activity level that's supposed to, you know, sort of mature and decrease until by kindergarten, first grade, they can do well in a classroom, and not much of an ability to, you know, plot and plan things over time. And then as you get to school age, um, I mean, I could speak for hours just about executive, executive function, and it turns out to be 
the really what sets kids up for success across all sorts of academic abilities. So on the one hand, executive function is your ability to uh, increasingly just manage your schoolwork to get your school bag back and forth from home to school. And then if you think about, again, the difference between early elementary school and middle school, at some point in there you develop a capacity to manage time, to you know handle a project, that's all executive function developing across elementary school. And again, if you pressure a third grader to do that, which uh, you know I do see sometimes. I mean, there are schools that are, seem to be putting increasing pressure on younger and younger kids. You know, you wouldn't expect someone who's in third, fourth grade to know how to study or to know how to plan a project without an adult reaching out and helping them and giving them some guidance. And if they if they don't get that guidance, it's going to be very stressful and overwhelming for them because they're, you know, they're just not cognitively there yet in terms of that, you know, that particular skill set. And, um, but it also turns out executive function is, you know, it, it, there's something called working memory that's part of it. That's how you organize stuff and in, organize information in your mind. Like as you're listening to a conversation like this, it's the part of your brain that's picking out the interesting details and maybe, you know, connecting them to other things you, uh, you know, you've learned in the past. And then, in, in, in terms of our discussion, it's where you're formulating the next question. All of that's working memory. And if your working memory is, is a challenge for you, you're, you're going to have a hard time with things like narrative writing, organizing your thoughts to get them on paper. So, you know, there's some people who think it, 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 that expecting very young kids to be organized in their writing is developmentally off. And, of course, you know, many of the writing programs in schools nowadays push writing at an incredibly young age. And some students are going to do fine with it, but but others who have a hard time with it aren't necessarily developmentally behind. They just need more of that type of instruction. Um, and then, so, so through school, I think the easiest way to think of executive function is it, it's that increasing capacity to do more and more complicated active, uh, you know, academic activities. Not that that's the only thing executive function is doing, but it's, I think it's the easiest way to picture it. And um, and it's a perfect example of that gut level, like, you know, sometimes you just need to step back, and if you have a, you know, sixth or seventh grader who has, on the one hand, is in a pretty demanding school, and on the other hand, has open-ended access to a smartphone and computer time, and no one is guiding them on how to, you know, manage a project, you know, not get sucked into YouTube when they're meant to be doing their homework, you know, demonstrate impulse control by not texting their friend in the middle of a, you know, all of this is executive function-based decision-making. So you can sort of step back sometimes and feel like, oh, right, you know, he's only, you know, 10, he's only 11 or whatever, all the way up through the, the whole developmental path and say, maybe, you know, maybe what's going on here is he needs just me to step in and sort of teach something to, you know, do, to develop a better plan here because the planning's too difficult. And certainly technology is its own complete, you know, really part of why it's so challenging for kids is because, you know, those of us with adult executive function and adult brains are trying to, you know, minimize its impact and use it well in life. And if you have a immature brain and, you know, immature, but, but excuse me, developmentally appropriate, but just not grown up yet, and then have this product that's made to hook us and keep us engaged and really is a, is a whole lot more interesting than your homework, you know, of course it's going to lead to disruption a lot of the time. You know, one of the points you make, and I think it's such an important one, is how the parent has to be the brain manager for the person whose executive function is still developing. 
Absolutely. I mean, and that, you know, absolutely. And that, that is, um, you know, a core point that I think uh, when, you know, things get stressful and busy, sometimes just gets lost. And, uh, you know, so to, to, to do just finish, you know, the next step of the developmental path of childhood, you can take that concept that you just, you just raised and bring it all the way to teenagers and recognize that, you know, teenagers need a lot more independence, a lot more collaboration. It's a whole other ball of wax. And yet you have to recognize once in a while that you are the mature brain manager and they are 10 years away from having a mature brain manager so that, you know, you let them show as much independence as they're capable of. But in terms of that gut level decision-making, the, you know, the sort of trusting yourself when it comes to child development, if you really begin to get a sense of like, this is what it means to have, you know, to be mature in all these different ways, um, there's going to be times when you recognize, like, okay, but, you know, that that's not okay. You know, we're, not, we're going to step in here now and either set a limit on the one hand or or just recognize that maybe it's just something that needs to be taught. Maybe it's something that isn't instinctual for my child yet. You know, I have to work on this a little bit here, which is harder in teens than younger kids, but it doesn't mean it's, it's, it's not doable. It just has to be very different in older kids. Now, let's circle back around. You mentioned the marshmallow test. And you begin your book actually talking about this research study. It's obviously an important touchstone for the development of executive function. So, um, I mean, one thing that's important to recognize even before I mention the marshmallow test is no one test defines anything in childhood. But I think um, I use it a lot. A lot of people use it a lot because it, it demonstrates, you know, the this whole field in essence or the the sort of beginning point of this whole field so the marshmallow test is an old experiment at this point where they uh the 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 gist of it is a child goes into a room with uh, a researcher who almost immediately pretends to get a phone call and says look there's there's a marshmallow on the table there and i tell you what i'm gonna be back in just a minute i gotta go get this call but if you can just wait until I get back before eating the marshmallow, I'll give you a second one. Um, so you can have one now, or if you can wait a few minutes, I'll give you two. Um, it turns out they use different treats and stuff, too. It wasn't always marshmallows. It was you know, something, something a child really liked. And, um, and then you know, that, that was the initial intervention almost in its entirety. And then the, So then they watched from the outside what happened, and, and they were able to group some of the kids into either being low delayers, kids who immediately went out and grabbed the marshmallow, or high delayers, you know, which, which often it looks a little bit like out of candid camera, where kids are like smelling the marshmallow and sitting on their hands and singing songs to themselves, but they find a way to wait and get the second marshmallow. Um, and um, and this is painting in broad strokes, by the way. I mean, these are looking at trends in child development. So if you have a child who uh, loves marshmallows so much that they can't wait, you know, that doesn't mean they're going to have a problem all the way through life. And and then the flip side of it, which a friend of mine pointed out at some point is that there must be some kids out there who are just so uh, so mature in their thinking. They're like, well, I might as well have one, but who needs two? So there's many nuances to the study. But then when they follow these kids up, what you find is that the, um, the low delayers, the kids who really have, uh, you know, don't have the, in general, are exhibiting more difficulty with self-control, have more behavioral, in, uh, behavioral issues in preschool. So this preschool measure of, self-management skills of impulse control and other skills like that predicts some behavioral outcomes. But what really becomes interesting is um, Walter Michelle and the people who did this study were able to track those kids until they got older. And in high school, the kids were 
the kids who had, based on this one preschool measure of self-management skills, the kids who had stronger self-management skills were more likely to do well in standardized tests in high school. And then somehow they were able to track them through another decade. And as they got older, the kids who had stronger self-management skills, the, the kids who had stronger self-management skills were less likely to become overweight, all based on this one test that had been done in preschool. And there have been other groups who have studied you know, similar, uh, similar patterns of development. So uh, one group, for example, showed that uh, having stronger attention skills in preschool predicts graduating from college. Uh, another group looked at outcomes like income when you're an adult. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is that strong self-management skills, even in preschool, set you up for really long-term success in a lot of different ways, which is why, uh, on the one hand, we've, you know, we've been emphasizing, I mean, I, it cuts both ways. We've been talking some of why understanding executive function really just helps you make easier choices as a parent a lot of the time. It just, you know, just just that... It, it creates that foundation of just this is what makes sense for this situation. But the flip side is is clearly if self-management skills are this important for all these different outcomes, academic outcomes, behavioral outcomes, social outcomes, we want to do what we can to promote them as parents also. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. When you talked about promoting self-management skills at a young age, mm-hmm. you emphasized play, open-ended mm-hmm. play. And I'm not clear how open-ended play helps mm-hmm. someone become a high delayer, if you will, versus a low sure. delayer. Well, I mean, first of all, it's all about the overall picture. But um, the reason, I mean, for, I, I think... Um, I'd say personally, I find it very reassuring. You, you can almost say that play must have, you know, must have evolved for a reason. It has social implications. It has other implications. But the reason play begins to affect executive function, presumably, is because when, first of all, when you're playing uh, imaginatively, you have to keep ideas in mind. So there's a cognitive aspect to that. Just holding, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, working memory is the ability to hold information in mind and manipulate it and change it. Um, there's a degree of impulse control because when you're playing with a bunch of kids, certainly uh, you, you might just be now we're playing pirates and now we're not. You know, now we're playing baseball. You know, and and you need to in that moment rein yourself in and follow along at some level. And if you're not going to follow along, you need to in a socially appropriate way negotiate the situation. So all of free play, because it's all driven by your imagination and your cognitive, you know, capacity to hold your to hold, uh, to flexibly change what you're thinking, to to sort of just navigate something on that larger level. Those are all abilities related to executive function. And then there also are you. You can almost look at any any form of play that requires focused attention and concentration and figuring things out is 
is probably going to build executive function too, and there isn't quite as much research around that. Um, but there is, you know, there's a group I know studying chess in England to see if the, you know, playing chess builds executive function and attention, and um, and a lot of forms of traditional play um, really do, you know, help in in development in this way. So. Um, uh, and and you know there are programs even there's a program one of the one of the better studied programs on this is called Tools of the Mind and that's an early childhood program that you know relies on largely uh, basically taking things like uh, a situation where you say you know let's pretend we're in a store and then after a few minutes you really you say to the kids let's switch roles now now you're going to be the shopkeeper and you're going to be the person buying and all of these things. There's an aspect of impulse control, an aspect of working memory, an aspect of cognitive flexibility to it all. Um, so that's one, you know, that's one way to use it. And then the other way to use it is really just through traditional games. Like I know, and I, I believe it's their program that uses uh, red light, green light, and then plays green light, red light, and purple light, yellow light, and, and just really pushes kids to, you know, develop these skills, these, these skills over time. So, um, so that's. I don't think anybody knows specifically how how why imaginative play is so closely linked to it, but that's presumably why imaginative play, open-ended play, builds executive function in that way. Now, Mark, when we were talking previously, I'm using my working memory here, you (laughs) talked about ADHD as a developmental delay in executive function. And so, first of all, I found that interesting. I've never heard it defined quite that way before. So that's helpful. And now are you able to work with people such that this delay is overcome? And how do you do that? Um, well, that is a, you know, that is a huge discussion. And I think, um, I mean, it's always important to, to start by saying that just because we can see ADHD as a developmental delay, that does, does not mean that children are, are going to outgrow it if we just step back and, and, uh, and watch. Um, there are some kids who can outgrow ADHD, but it takes, you know, the, the ones who do it, do it over the course of all of childhood. So, um, and uh, even before I talk about intervention, I would say that just to show why executive, it's sort of the flip side of the research of showing the positive benefits of executive function is recognizing that undermanaged ADHD, uh, children don't have issues just in school. It affects school. It affects their social lives in some kids. It affects their physical health in other kids um, because it affects any part of life that requires management and keeping track of yourself, in essence. So that you know, the untreated ADHD, undertreated ADHD is actually a very wide-ranging developmental disorder because of that. Um, the intervention uh, is more complex than just... The, the goal is to definitely teach to catch kids up but because ADHD is, first of all, uh, a proven medical disorder, there's no doubt it's a medical disorder at this point in time. I mean, the, genet- the genetics of ADHD are almost as strong as the genetics of height, so that um, you know, we have to start from the premise it's a medical disorder, which doesn't mean we need to intervene medically, but we just have to understand that it's not anybody's fault. It's not the child's fault who has it. It's not parents' fault. It's not society's fault. Um, so catching someone up, like you said, is a hundred percent the goal, but there's no one intervention that's going to do it. And um, you know, broadly speaking, when I try to lay out a plan around ADHD, there typically are educational interventions kids are going to require. There are 
some combination of parenting supports and behavioral uh, interventions that are going to teach them some skills, like you have to teach them, for example, some people think as people get older, time blindness, as I mentioned earlier, that the ability to picture time is part of executive function. Some people feel that time blindness is actually the core deficit in ADHD as most people get older. So you have to teach them how to picture time and, and manage it differently. So the second piece are the sort of behavioral interventions. Um, and, and a third piece, which I think is an important reflection, even for today's the reason I even touch, I, I only touch on ADHD in the new book, but I think it's important to reflect on is because it does, it's sort of like a mirror you can hold up to see what it, why executive function is important in so, so many aspects of life. Because the third area of life ADHD tends to impact is just healthy living. Anything that requires a routine and self-management skills to sustain over time is harder to do if you have ADHD, but it turns out they all impact ADHD also. So ADHD tends to lead to poor sleep patterns, but poor sleep patterns worsen your ADHD. There's a uh, same thing happens for nutrition and exercise is one of the you know, most useful things for people with ADHD. Kids with ADHD do regularly, but be, but for various reasons they often fall out of exercising regularly. So the third piece of the picture of managing ADHD has to do with just general health which, again, for today's discussion is just re worth reflecting on for a second, even without ADHD, because you're seeing what happens when kids have uh, poor executive function. And then it's only fair to mention, even though it's not really a discussion for today, that you know, the ADHD medications themselves are just, um, I mean, most of what you read online is, is uh, fairly misleading. And uh, the medications, when they're used appropriately, have been shown to be very safe and effective almost over almost a century now. So... Um, so we can't necessarily teach everybody these skills just through instruction. Some people, because the underlying issue is medical, end up you know, trying the medications for sure. So first of all, I think it's very important to hear and understand that ADHD is a medical disorder. You seem to feel that that's incontrovertible at this point. I didn't know that, so that's very important for me to hear. Oh, that's not because someone wasn't given the right environment or something like that. Right. Now, another thing you say in the book, and you, and you say this just as a, a small, almost in passing, that it's relatively consistent over time, the number of people who actually have ADHD. You say it's one in 20. And, you know, I, I had the feeling that in the last couple decades, more people have ADHD than ever before. But it sounds like you don't believe that's true. Um, the, you know, the, uh, studies of ADHD haven't really shown that to be true at all. Um, even, like, there's been whole books that have come out reporting that certain countries have lower impact rates of ADHD, and really the research says it's, it's, it's a relatively, um, it's, it is a relatively consistent rate of ADHD. It's around 1 in uh, 15 kids, and then some people outgrow it, so the number goes down as you get into adulthood. Um, but it's pretty consistent across cultures, across time, across uh, part, you know, countries, now, that doesn't mean the catch with ADHD is it, it, it is clinical medicine. There's no test for it yet. So th we have a, um, again, to give, it f to give, to give the, whole, uh, the whole picture, there's, there's a ton of discussion about, um, appropriately, about the fact that it is definitely over, it is, it is overdiagnosed in parts of the world, in parts of this country in particular. But that doesn't mean anything about the actual rate of ADHD. You know, those are two different problems. If you actually have ADHD, somebody needs to just give you some support because you have a developmental delay or you have a medical problem, however you want to phrase it. 
you know, uh, I guess problem isn't the, a good word to be using, but you have a medical condition. Um, but the flip side of that is that there's actually uh, other types of ADHD that are often uh, underdiagnosed. So, in, you know, I, I haven't said yet that what we used to call ADD is actually now just considered part of ADHD. It's somebody who has the more internal difficulties with executive function. So they can be getting reasonable grades, look, you know, from the outside like they're doing pretty well in life, and inside just be totally exhausted by having really poor executive function, like just poor time management skills, constant forgetfulness, constantly living with their own careless mistakes, um, so that while on the one hand we certainly should be looking into how we can cut down on where ADHD is being overdiagnosed, which most often is in uh, kids who are misbehaving, um, the flip side of that is we also have to look at places where ADHD is underdiagnosed because people are missing um, the sort of subtler, more internal symptoms of it. Uh, the stereotype, there's actually been, um, you know, a fair amount. It's not always true, but the stereotype is often smart, well-behaved girls with more mild ADHD. It just gets missed entirely. All right. Well, I know I've been talking a lot in this conversation about your work with ADHD because I, I find it so interesting and also how it led you to this through line of supporting executive function and its development through the early years into teenage years and young adulthood. And one of the things that impressed me in your new book, How Children Thrive, was this type of back-to-basics approach that you use to parenting again and again. That even though we're in this time of new challenges, whether it's video games or cell phones, you have a quote in the book, parenting in the digital age means the same thing it did in the stone age. And I think that a lot of people would find that surprising. They think, you know, oh, we need a whole new set of skills now because our kids are, are rushing to their, you know, electronic devices. But you're saying, no, there are certain basics and those basics develop executive function. So if you were to summarize what you think the basics are of, you could call it just good parenting, according to Mark Burton, what would they be? <laughs> oh, um, well, I mean, I think the when I say that it's like the same as the Stone Age, the, the foundation of it is always going to be stable, loving relationships at home. You know, just a relationship that is um, warm and positive and makes you feel valued is, you know, certainly the beginning point, which obviously doesn't specifically, it, it that has almost more to do with a more global concept of resilience. I mean, that's not specifically executive function, but that's the foundation of it. Um, what I think sometimes gets lost is that that really has to be equally balanced with guidance and limit setting, um, which is something that directly relates to understanding executive function. Young kids who don't have a strong brain manager aren't necessarily going to make the greatest choices around behavior or food or bedtime or anything else. So we have to recognize that it's uh, you know at, in, at home it's a balance of you know overall positive feedback with very clear limits when those are appropriate. And then uh, the second piece of so so that's a and that and that is a a huge first step and and obviously that's something that's been true forever but I think um, for a lot of subtle reasons you know gets lost in different ways um, so that you know that and that's the starting point and then the second piece is when we look at what really promotes um, like what sort of activities really promote you know, just healthy child development thankfully a lot of it has to do with playtime more open ended. Um, 
you know, more open-ended downtime, not over-scheduling, you know, letting go of some of the extra stuff. You know, I think letting go is always, you know, just of the extra stuff that's that's causing us stress and pressure is often helpful. You know, there's often an external pressure that we have to do more and more and more for our kids, and yet family time and play time and outdoor time are often really the what our kids need most from us so that they'll do better in school in particular. Uh, you know, language development is really important for kids, and yet where do kids develop language? They develop language from talking to adults, uh, from reading books, you know, from really old school stuff. So, you know, when you tie all that together, especially in early childhood, in early childhood you see a lot of things that can be done in a very unpressured way and are really going to, you know, going to be what really, from a research point of view, if nothing else, set your kids up for school success. Uh, you know, in terms of this whole, uh, you know, usually evolving discussion about technology, um, you know, I think it's it's all about balance, and we just have to step back and look at the fact that um, just because something's new and cutting edge doesn't mean it's completely benign. Um, but you know, technology itself is just a tool. It's one we could use well, and it's one we could use poorly, like any other, like any other. And um, and in childhood in particular, again, I said it earlier. Kids are the ones with immature brain managers. There's no reason to assume, you know, any more than if we just threw them the car keys at 10 and said, go take a drive. You know, there's no reason to assume that they're going to manage technology well on their own. They just, they need our supervision, you know, for all the um, very real and very negative research about the impact of technology on child development, which it's important to familiarize yourself with as a parent to recognize that this is real. This isn't just like, you know the ad, you know the, like some new form of music that's supposedly going to wreck kids. You know, it never turns out to anything. You know, there's a real impact of technology on child development, and yet the research is actually quite reassuring. It really just says that when we recognize that parents need to be moderating it and and setting limits and guiding kids to healthy use, then kids do fine. So that it's but it's in, and to come back to what you said in terms of why we can tie old-school parenting to modern parenting, it really comes down to just the recognition that kids are kids, and just because, you know, they want to be on their smartphone 47 hours, <laughs> I think I did my math wrong there, I was going to say 47 hours a day, um, but um, I guess that's not possible, actually. Uh, you know, but the point is that they just, they might want to be on it all the time, but that doesn't mean they should be, or that's what, or that's what's healthiest for them. Mm-hmm. And in terms of setting those limits, you know, I, I've seen so many parents, I'm not a parent myself, but I'm an aunt to many young nieces and nephews and have friends with small kids. And I've seen so many times parents get so frustrated with their kids who are sneaking into their purse to get their cell phone or sneaking off into the room to go play video games or under the table or playing with some kind of device. And it's such a battle. How do you draw a limit and not turn it into a battle? Um... Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's no quick answer to that, except, I, you know, broadly speaking, I would say there's several different things. I mean, one is, is uh, all of it starts with how, you know, our own use as parents. So, you know, we need to make sure that when we're with our kids, we're just with our kids and not on our phones. Um, because Partly because it's so important for children to have that relationship without it, you know, without technology getting in the way, and partly because we're demonstrating something when we do that. Um, then when it comes to actually setting limits around technology itself, um, it's easier if you start younger for one. So you just want to set the guidelines 
so there's a whole other discussion for kids who are out the other end of this and are already teenagers. But ideally, you just start by establishing, like, this is how we live at home. You know, and it's a lot about just healthy living. So we don't do it all the time. And this is these are our guidelines. And you set, you know, so we when we have downtime, we have downtime. And maybe you watch some, you know, do some stuff before dinner. So some of it is just building it into routines at a very young age. You know, it's really useful to have a tech bedtime in a household. It's useful to keep screens out of the bedrooms as much as possible. So we'll, some of it has to do with establishing a lifestyle young. And then the rest of it has to do with, you know, it's really challenging. I don't think there's any black and white answers, but just has to do with behavior management. You know, it really has to do with, uh, first of all, often spinning it around so it's a privilege to be earned. So, you, you know, it's not... Uh, an entitlement. It's something, if you use it responsibly, you can have more, and if you use it irresponsibly, you'll get less. And uh, I wish there was a less stark-sounding answer, but a lot of it does have to do with that, so that instead of letting it become a game, you just establish your expectations as a parent. And um, and yet, you know, it's easier to say that than to do it. A lot of it is uh, just doing our best and then adapting to whatever happens. I mean, there's it's of all the uh parenting is rarely ever perfect and clean it's easy much easier to sort of set out you know general advice that that you know is a is a good starting point and then it's all about dealing with whatever imperfection and mess follows next sometimes so i don't want so i don't want to make it sound like it's easy to do it that way but conceptually there isn't anything else to to look at it it's all about living the lifestyle you want to live like this is where we think technology this is how i think technology is healthiest in my household and I'm going to, you know, this, so we're going to live the same way you tell somebody, you know, we're going to brush our teeth, we're going to get outside once in a while, whatever it is, this is how we live. And then the other side of it just has to be that recognition that if we don't figure out a way in each individual household to set some boundaries and limits, there's no reason to assume that most kids are going to, going to themselves. Now, you're a father, right, Mark? I am, yes. I'm curious, of all the things you know that work, uh-huh. What's the hardest for you to put into practice as a dad? Around technology? No, just in general. Like, you know all this stuff now. I mean, you coach... <laughs> it's you all hard coach, to do in your own household. You coach um, so many parents. Uh, no, I don't think... I would say... Um, uh, it, it's so general a question, I'm not even sure um, where to ask. I mean, some of it is just that it's hard to... You know, it's, it's, it's hard to stay consistent. You, you know, I think... Uh, in spite of knowing better, I still get hooked by, you know, hooked by stuff going on at home and things my kids do that, that make me feel worried or anxious or just generally annoy me and then I'm sucked in and then now I'm doing all the things I would, you know, hope somebody else wouldn't do. So it's definitely part of parenting that you're going to get, you know, knocked off balance emotionally and that's something, uh, you know, that just, you know, I'm never going to avoid entirely. Um, and technology is, you know, even you know, even being as clear as I can with the boundaries, it's a stress. You know, I think it's a stress for many parents nowadays, and um, and I get sucked into that discussion too, where you know, where I might guide. You know, I think the clearest, for, for, I mean, a subtlety here is that for some kids, the more black and white you are about what's appropriate, the less they're going to think about it. It's almost like a weight off their shoulders to not be constantly worrying about how much is okay or not okay. Um, and yet it still becomes a discussion and a, and a battle at home sometimes. So, um, you know, I think, um, I, I don't know if that answers your question. It was such a, uh, so. Well, I, mean, I put you on the spot. I put you on the spot a little bit, but I was yeah, also just. No, I don't mind being on the spot, but I wasn't, yeah. But I think, those, I mean, those are a couple of areas that are challenging at home. Um, and, um, 
you know, I think the thing about parenting is that there's, you know, it's, it, it always changes over time. And so just when you think you, you have a, a handle on this week, you know, you have next week to deal with. So, um, which, which, you know, I don't mean to say that negatively. I just mean like the next, yeah, there's always, you know, it's, it's a blast, but there's always, there, you know, it, it's just, uh, there's, you know, I, I, I love nothing more than time with my kids. And yet, uh, you know, there's always some new thing to be dealing with, but that's just, you know, what it means to be raising kids. Now, Mark, you mentioned briefly mindfulness and sure. mindfulness meditation and how it affects our ability in terms of executive functioning and that mindfulness meditation supports healthy executive functioning. Can you explain to me why that's so? Uh, absolutely. And, um, and, and I would just think as you were saying that, I realized that we've sort of, you know, we've, we have actually, even though I haven't laid it out, touched on, you know, several of the different areas that, uh, you know, in, in, if you sort of want to organize your thoughts around what promotes and what relates to executive function in childhood, uh, it's sort of the activities we pick with them, the environment we're raising kids in, education is a piece of it, you know, what's going on in school. Um, and so mindfulness to me, um, the way it relates is this, uh, you know, one of the more I don't, I don't even know if I, I, I've been saying for years it's cutting edge, but I guess most people are familiar now with the concept of neuroplasticity, I hope, which is the idea that anything we do uh, repetitively actually physically rewires the brain. You know, it's a very different way of thinking of brain development, different than I was taught growing up, uh, growing up, different, definitely growing up, but different than I was taught in medical school even. Um, that, you know, the brain basically evolves like a muscle. We can't change everything. And when it comes to the broader picture of what it means to practice mindfulness, it's not even meditation we want to be thinking about at all. Um, the broader practice of mindfulness is, is one that's just um, meant to help us handle the challenges of life by helping us stay settled when pressured, helping us stay more focused. So I, you know, I normally think about mindfulness as having an aspect that has to do with focus and things, staying settled. Another aspect that has to do with sort of self-awareness or, or awareness and working with habits and then a piece that has to do with compassion, you know, this sort of broader sense of how it impacts our world. Um, so when you look at mindfulness and executive function, it's really one of the more direct ways we have to, uh, uh, in essence, work on self-management skills because what's mindfulness aiming to do? You know, the intention is to help you manage life, in essence, is to help you manage life when you feel unsettled, manage life when you feel, actually, when you feel settled as well. It's just, it's meant to build skills like executive function, like focused attention, managing your emotions, you know, pausing and taking a broader perspective, um, all of which is very executive function related. So, uh, you know, one of the reasons I ended up uh, involved with this book and one of the things that, that sort of all, that just sort of clicked to me, both personally and professionally, is I was introduced to mindfulness myself uh, you know, many, many years ago during my, my medical training, just uh, I, fortuitously. Um, and as my career has evolved, there's this evolving research about ADHD and executive function. There's this evolving research about mindfulness, which does also relate to executive function and, and all of, and executive function as a developmental path. And, and, you know, all of it just comes together um, and is really all just different aspects of the same concept that, you know, we really need to... Uh, actively make the choices in life that help us build skills that keep us resilient and, um, you know, that, that are going to support us when the challenges come up. And, and the flip side is I think I've been overemphasizing challenges and also, you know, to enjoy the good times too, to say, you know, to really 
um, not overlook all that as well. One of the connections that this conversation has made for me is a few times you've talked about how as children develop, they can learn more and more self-management skills. So they can delay when needed. They can manage their emotions, etc. And you also talked about executive function as being this ability to be like an orchestrator and being able to bring a lot of different planning pieces together and plan into the future, having a good sense of time. So this connection between how we manage ourselves and our ability to manage others. Mm-hmm. It seems really important that if we're able to manage ourselves, our own emotions, we're going to be much more capable of being able to manage a lot of complexity in our environment and even other people. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's a, that's, that's a brilliant point, and it relates... Um, Direct. I mean, when we talk about practicing mindfulness, we're not talking about a self-help skill set here. I mean, mindfulness, uh, and just as an example, just this, this is uh, directly relates to what you just said. So starting with mindfulness, because we were just talking about it, I think it's important to think about mindfulness as something not as self-help, but the assumption is, is because we're more settled in managing our own lives, that influences everyone else around us. That influences how we... Uh, in, you know, interact with everybody. That, that that changes way more than just our own experience, and you could see all of executive function that way. You know, it's because that's what life is. Is you know, in fact, um, one of the more one of the academic constructs of executive function, which is uh, from a researcher named Russell Barkley. You know, he Russell uh, Dr. Barkley calls it you know, almost the foundation of ethics and morality. I mean, that, that the reason, from his point of view, the reason we developed executive function again, wasn't to take care of our own lives independently. It's because we need a pretty complex brain manager to get our own needs met in a way that is culturally, environmentally appropriate, that we need, you know, it's sort of, these, these are the skills we use that sort of engage with the world, that help us meet our future needs, our present needs in a way that, you know, follows the rules and takes into account other people's perspective and so that all of executive function can definitely be tied, you know, not just to our own well-being, but are definitely, you know, it, it impacts hugely how we interact with everyone around us as well. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to my final question, Mark. Here you work day-to-day with children, helping parents, helping families. And you also write these books, your new book, How Children Thrive, The Practical Science of Raising Independent, Resilient, and Happy Kids. What's the cultural contribution you're hoping to make with your work? I I, I think my... You know, my intentions... You know what, what? The reason I want to do all this work is 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 to. Um, I mean, they're they're different but related. And I think when it comes to my writing in particular, I really um, want to help people sort of cut through the stuff that's confusing. Cut through there. I think there's just way too much overwhelming information, and and in terms of volume, in terms of fearfulness in the world right now, and. And really, I, I just I've always loved writing, and and the, and I want to be able to, you know, sort of get the word out of of ways to sort of cut through it all, live a simpler life, do the things that really do make it more likely our children are going to succeed, 
um, and make things um, more enjoyable and uh, you know and manageable for both parents and children. Um, and I guess in many ways that's that's kind of what I'm doing day to day in my clinical practice too. You know, I just it, the goal, the goal is always is to try to make things easier and to help people get where they want to go. Um, you know, whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. I've been talking with Mark Burton. He's the author of the new book, How Children Thrive, The Practical Science of Raising Independent, Resilient, and Happy Kids. Mark, thank you so much for your good work. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Soundstreet.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening, everyone.